This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. The words Bitcoin and bubble are never far apart. It recently smashed through 1 million rand, with many analysts saying it could reach $150,000 by year-end, or even $1 million within the next few years. Of course, it has retreated a little bit from 1 million rand in the last few days. But if that's the case, how do we put a value on Bitcoin and does it have a fair value in much the same way as you attempt to put a fair value on JSE listed stocks? It seems Bitcoin poses something of a challenge to the traditional investment community. So we thought we'd try to get to the bottom of this and try to figure out why people believed what was worth less than 100 rand nine years ago is today worth around a million. Welcome to the Great Bitcoin Debate. Joining us to explore this are Kyle Wales, a fund manager and member of Flagship's global investment team. He's been investing internationally for over 13 years. Prior to Flagship, he worked at Coronation Fund Managers for nine years in the global and global emerging markets team. And he also co-founded a global equities boutique at Old Mutual Investment Group. Kyle is a qualified chartered accountant and a CFA chartered holder. Also joining us is Chris Becker, who is no stranger to MoneyWeb Crypto listeners. Chris is a macro strategist and blockchain technologies lead at Investec Bank. Welcome, Chris, and welcome, Kyle. Chris, let's start with you. Can Bitcoin be considered real money? And if so, why? You need to think about what real money is. What's the definition of real money in inverted commas? The way we think about you know, real money today um, is something known as it's legal tender. It's something that is essentially sanctioned and approved and issued by monetary authorities or central banks. It's a sovereign creation, essentially. Um, if you think about what this type of money looks like, which we would call fiat money, so it's a government issued by decree of a government uh, via central bank and a banking system, is it's typically a liability on a commercial bank's balance sheet primarily, or it's a bank note, which is a liability on a central bank's balance sheet. Bitcoin's not like that at all. Bitcoin's a bearer instrument. It's a, it's a digital asset. It's a scarce digital economic good. So in that sense, it's not the same thing. I'm not even sure whether Bitcoin competes directly with traditional fiat monies, but rather it operates in a new economy which is fully digital, where the, for the first time ever, you have digital goods that can be assigned property rights outside of centralized intermediaries. And so you've got a whole new digital asset class with Bitcoin being one of the reserve currencies for that specific economy. So if that makes sense to you, um, you know, fiat monies operate within a certain jurisdiction or nation state or territory. Bitcoin doesn't work like that. It works all over the internet. So, so it's quite different. So in that sense, I wouldn't say it's, it's a real money. It's something, it's novel, it's new. Uh, and uh, it's at this stage looks more like a store of value asset which is still in its startup phase, hence it's volatile and difficult to value rather than something that's established and traditional. All right, Kyle, do you want to respond to that? Yes, um, I, I would approach it slightly differently uh, to, to Chris. And um, where, where I would begin the discussion is around what the functions of money are. And there are three functions uh, that stand out for me, and that is money being a medium of exchange, money being a unit of account, and finally, money being a store of value. And with respect 
to the first functions of money, the medium of exchange and the unit of account, fiat currency actually does a far better job than Bitcoin does. And there's um, two reasons for this. Firstly, the, the value of fiat currency is less volatile, as Chris mentioned earlier. And secondly, um, more transactions, more fiat currency transactions can be processed per second than Bitcoin transactions. So an example there is the visa infrastructure where 24,000 transactions can be processed per second versus um, on the Bitcoin algorithm where only seven transactions apparently can be processed per second. The third, the third function of money is where Bitcoin could come into its own, and, and that's as a store of value. And this idea of Bitcoin being a store of value is tied to um, the idea that uh, fiat currency is being debased due to quantitative easing and, and the money, the wholesale money printing we've, we've witnessed over the last couple of years. But Bitcoin does not exist on its own in potentially serving a role as a store of value. Um, and gold uh, is, in my view, its primary competitor in the space. And while Bitcoin is very popular amongst uh, millennial investors, uh, one must bear in mind that amongst baby boomers, who actually control 53% of the wealth in the United States of America, as opposed to millennials who control 4% of the wealth, gold is actually a far more popular option than Bitcoin is. So that's, uh, that, that would be my take on it, Karen. Okay. Chris, do you want to come back to that? I mean, I think one of the things about the number of transactions that, is, uh, that can be handled on the Bitcoin network, of course, that changes with the Lightning Network. So you can get many, many thousands uh, of times, many, many thousands of transactions per second. So it's just more intelligent use of, of, the, of the network. Yeah, so I guess, you know, just to sort of respond to those, those three points. So, you know, on, on, on something like Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, like I said, it operates in a different jurisdiction to traditional fiat money. Um, if you, for example, wanting to purchase a non-fungible token, which is a un unique type of crypto asset registered on a blockchain, you cannot, cannot pay for it in a traditional fiat money. Now, if one holds the view that, um, you know, a currency needs to serve as a medium of exchange, you know, the RAND can serve as a medium of exchange in the territory of South Africa and has to be accepted in a transaction. But it cannot technologically be accepted to purchase an NFT on the Ethereum blockchain. Those transactions can only happen in ETH, for example. So ETH is now not Bitcoin, but this helps to explain the concept of this new economy where there are native currencies that coordinate incentives amongst very different participants, uh, which has given rise to a marketplace. So there's, that's important to understand. There's a difference here, and there's a new economy and marketplace where traditional currencies don't work. Okay? They technologically cannot work there. Um, and then secondly, you mentioned Lightning Network as a scalability layer for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin as it stands is, is a base protocol. It's a basic protocol. It's, it's highly secure. It's the most secure database on the planet. And the currency Bitcoin creates incentives to keep this database and ledger secure. Okay. Um, but it's inefficient in processing 
transactions at scale. So I think it processes something like seven transactions per second, which obviously is not going to scale for the whole world's use. But that's the first layer. On top of that layer, you can have payments channels or settlement systems like the Lightning Network, which gives you the ability to scale dramatically more than Visa does today. But that's an off it's an off-chain settlement layer. And so it's another application, you know, of this technology that can scale it. And that's, for example, what Twitter has been integrating with to allow tips on its platform. It can actually scale to all of Twitter's users today. Okay, so that's that's and, and, and that is what over a billion. That's a lot. I don't mm. know what it is, mm. but uh, you know, so Lightning's extremely promising in that regard, and Bitcoin's got its own, own layer two and layer three scaling solutions, and then Ethereum's got the same stuff. But essentially, it means you don't need all the computation and security to move, you know, a billion dollars in BTC value then you would need to pay for a cup of coffee or to tip someone. And so you don't need the same level of security, so you can create a new settlement layer on top of it. And then I guess on the third point is a store of value. Yeah, it's it's these assets are still volatile. It's very early days for them. I think there's a generational turning in adoption that's taking place. And so this technology is only 10 years old. Uh, I think it's um, I saw earlier today that with the Ethereum blockchain, something like only 2% of the world has an Ethereum wallet at this stage. I think Bitcoin adoption might be around 5% of the global population, if not less than that. I think it's slightly more than 100 million people. 100 to 200 million mm. people. So it's very early days. And I think Kyle is correct that the older generations perhaps are not uh, adopting that as quickly, I guess, with other new technologies that also wouldn't have been the first to adopt them. Um, and interestingly, it's not the millennial generation that's adopting this first. The average age of adoption for this asset and technology is 39 to 40. And there's some studies by central banks that will show that. Um, but yeah, it'll take some time to play out. It's still a startup asset. It's a startup monetary technology. And startups are volatile uh, and I think Kyle can attest to that. And so that's the stage that we're still in for this. You know. Yeah. All right. I mean, there's, there's no question that, that investors, they see real value in Bitcoin. I mean, how else do you account for a price above a million rand? Kyle, are you not under pressure from clients to get some little bit of exposure to Bitcoin, given the outsized influence that can have on returns? We, um, we certainly wouldn't be averse to holding Bitcoin. I mean, our... Um, our largest strategy is is a multi-asset flexible strategy, and, and we think Bitcoin would potentially have an important role to play um, as an alternative asset like private equity um, or, or, or something similar to that. Uh, the, the problem at the moment is certainly within a unit trust type structure, we, we are simply not allowed uh, to, to hold Bitcoin um, either physically, directly, or, or even through a Bitcoin ETF. Unfortunately, it's simply not an asset uh, that that regulation 28 allows um, allows one to hold. Okay, so it's, it's basically legally you're precluded from having any exposure. But what are your clients telling you? What do they say? Well, I think the the, the, the clients that are, are bullish on Bitcoin are buying Bitcoin um, themselves. Um, and uh, yeah, my, my my only caution to them would be that um, it may make sense to hold Bitcoin in a portfolio, but certainly one should consider your overall portfolio, and and just manage uh, your overall uh, weighting to to Bitcoin or or S, which 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 I think is actually you know a far more interesting um, 
crypto alternative. Okay. Chris, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I think I think Ethereum is a lot more interesting because it's it's a smart contract platform on top of which a huge amount of innovation is taking place. Um, but it's it's basically ETH and Ethereum would be to Bitcoin what oil would be to gold. They're two quite unique assets with different properties and characteristics. Um, and so when you when you sort of understand that um, and you start to look at the use cases of Ethereum, it is it is very exciting. There's a lot there's a lot that's going on there. A lot of the experimentation and innovation taking place there is not necessarily going to be successful. And so you're seeing a huge amount of new coins and uh, different types of incentives that are created for different open source communities to collaborate together. Um, you know, new types of assets like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which is basically assigning property rights to digital goods, which I would say could be one of the most profound economic uh, developments we certainly seeing in our lifetime. And the reason I say that you is- You talk about NFTs specifically. NFTs specifically. Okay. Because if you think about digital goods and how digital our lives are, but you don't actually own any digital goods. Think about digital goods that you own. You don't own any digital goods. The large technology companies essentially own the bulk of the digital goods. That's why they're so valuable. Okay. You upload your photographs to a cloud. Guess who owns those photographs now? Um, you might have a login in your head, but really the servers and the hardware and the information on those things are owned by these large companies. Now, what non-fungible tokens do, predominantly on Ethereum, Ethereum technology is used for this, is you can assign property rights to digital goods. It means you can once again own a digital music library. You used to own a library of, of records or CDs. It became digitized. You now rent it from Spotify. Well, NFTs give you the ability to actually own your music files again. Kindle, when you buy a book, you essentially rent it until you, you pass away. You, you don't own it. You're renting it from them. Here, you can own digital files, digital books. And the use cases of this are only really just starting to be explored. And the area of innovation is around digital art. I think in the future, we're going to see an entire new capital structure uh, that develops and you have prices of digital goods developing and you'll be able to own apps, own files, trade and sell these things. They're going to have an economic value to you. And I think that's going to be a major development that economists are going to have a lot of fun, uh, you know, with understanding. I wanted to actually touch on this with you, Chris. The, the focus on cryptos has been as, a, as an emerging asset class. And, but the use cases we've already discussed, they go way beyond that. We're talking about NFTs and we're assigning property rights to digital goods you know, for the first time. This whole idea that grew up with the, the birth of the internet was that uh, you know, things that can be replicated a billion times have got no real value. So an article that can be read by a billion different people has got no real value. That has changed with NFTs. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, I was with a company yesterday that actually develops this. And it's quite fascinating what, uh, what they're doing and what people are prepared to pay for some of these goods. What I want is give us your vision of the future, just in the near-term future, um, five years from now, say. Sure. I mean, this, this world's very, there's so much going on and it's kind of kind of hard to predict <laughs> what uh, catches on. Uh, I didn't expect NFTs to catch on this quickly, but I think in line with what I was just saying, I think 
what we're going to see happening is, as far as the digital economy is concerned, we're going to see property rights moving back towards the individual. You're going to be able to own goods on the internet, and you're going to be able to monetize and earn an income, lend those assets out to earn interest. Um, you're going to be able to rent out digital goods that can be used in a certain application, like let's say a game. So if you own a skin, you would be able to rent it out to people, and they'll pay you to use that. Um, so you're going to see a, you're going to see an ownership economy developing in the digital world. And uh, this is going to start interacting with crypto assets like Bitcoin, ETH, but it's also going to start interacting with decentralized financial applications built on top of Ethereum, which I think is going to it's going to be, uh, I, you know, in more than five years' time, I would say, quite revolutionary to the way that we think about money and banking and finance. Um, but obviously, in the interim, there's going to be a lot of hype, speculation, manias, booms and busts. And yep. people need to be careful what they get involved with. They need to do their own research before plunging in and, you know, piling a whole lot of capital in. And like Carl said, understand this risk in the context of your overall, you know, asset allocation and portfolio. Yeah, Carl, I mean, at, at some point, would you consider some exposure to cryptos? Or is it a question of getting regulations in place first and then assessing the business case behind each crypto? And we've already gone through, Bitcoin has quite a different business case to Ethereum. And then you've got the other... Uh, yes. Ethereum sort of killers or copycats, whatever you want to call them, like Solana and Polkadot and Chainlink and so on. Um, but these do actually have business cases and they do generate earnings. So you can, like you value a company, you can start to value these these um, these blockchain tokens. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, as as you mentioned, uh, regulations is is one of the primary factors which which has kept us out of the Bitcoin market or the crypto market more generally up till now. The 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 second issue is is around uh, volatility. So just given how volatile um, Bitcoin is currently, it could only ever be a small uh, portfolio position, and. Um, Professional investors obviously assess um, asset performance on a risk-adjusted basis, um, and 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 the result of that also is that an asset that is as volatile as Bitcoin is needs to generate a return that's multiple times the return that equities, for example, um, generates simply to hold its own on a risk-adjusted basis. And I mean, just just to throw some numbers out there. Uh, the annualized volatility of Bitcoin is around 70%. Um, if you look at the annualized volatility of the S&P 500, it sits at around 18%. And the annualized volatility of gold is sitting at 12%. So if you're making 20% um, returns in the equity market, just given the relative volatilities, you should be making close to 100% um, in the, the Bitcoin market just, just to keep your head um, above water so to speak, on a risk-adjusted basis. So those, those, those would be the two obstacles uh, for, for us, Kieran, is, is simply, A, the, A, the regulations in South Africa have, haven't um, you know, kept up with, with some other places internationally um, where institutional investors are allowed to hold cryptos, and B, um, the volatility is still quite a big uh, concern for us, so it it would keep our position sizing small. If if we did 
participate in that market. All right, Chris, I, I want you to respond to that. Um, but I think one of the things to point out is that Apple in the early days, Apple is, is worth $2.5 trillion today. So is Microsoft. These are unbelievable valuations. But Apple in its early days was as volatile as Bitcoin. Um, and Kyle has just mentioned the, you know, you know, those percentages and what you would expect as a return for that kind of volatility. What do you say to that? Yeah, look, I, 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 I agree with the point. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a higher risk, more volatile asset than traditional ones due to the nature of it. It's still early days. It's a startup managing financial technology. And, and, you know, there's a lot of speculation around the use cases that this asset is going to serve in the future. And that means there's a lot of speculation around, um, you know, what it's going to be used for. As a result of that, demand st- tends to shift around. And what you're dealing with here is, is the first ever economic good that's got a perfectly predictable supply curve. It's a perfectly inelastic supply of an asset. What that means is if the price of gold, for example, doubles, triples, quadruples in the next month, the economic incentives to go deeper under the ground, to go and mine more gold in order to increase the supply to profit off the higher price goes up. And what tends to happen is the supply of gold will go up in that in that instance. Now, historically, the average supply growth rate for, for gold was 1.5%, but it fluctuates around that. Okay, But the point is there's an elastic supply curve to gold. Other e- economic goods like oil has an even more elastic supply curve. So if the price of oil goes up a lot, suddenly U.S. shale comes online and U.S. is suddenly energy independent or whatever the reasons might be. Um, Bitcoin is perfectly inelastic. So no matter how high the price goes, you cannot mine more Bitcoins. Okay, And so from that perspective, like Kyle also said, it competes with gold. But I think the point that I wanted to make around this gold versus Bitcoin sort of debate is Gold is is good at this function in the natural world, in the real world, in the physical world. You're dealing with an element that's very unique and specific that only you can only find to a certain extent on the planet. Chemists are able to identify this this element, uh, AU or gold. Me and you can't really go and identify this good. Okay? But it is what it is, and it's got a it's an economic good that served a certain purpose historically. It gold cannot be represented in bits of information. The moment you want to represent gold as bits of information on the internet so that you can move that value, you fall short. It's not possible. What you then have to do is somebody with a vault who stores gold, for example, needs to take the gold for you. They need to represent that gold electronically in a digital format. And you need to trust that intermediary that they do have the gold they say they have, that they're not going to be robbed, that they're not uh, you know, over-issuing digital claims on the gold relative to what they actually have in the vault. And this is where Bitcoin comes into its own on the internet. There's bits of information with a perfectly inelastic supply curve the supply cannot be altered. If you try and alter the supply, you get kicked out of the network automatically. And it's people are starting to understand the properties of such scarce information that is firstly being used, you know, as as was early days just speculative. You know, then one of the early sort of adopters of it, Hal Finney, said, if this catches on, you might want to own some because the value is going to go up. It's going from there towards 
more sort of mainstream adoption. Um, but I think the properties of this, uh, gold cannot compete with on the internet. And that's why I think Bitcoin over time will continue to eat away at the market cap of gold. Right. And of course, Bitcoin has got a, a hard cap of 21 million coins. There will never be more than 21 million in issue. And I think the inflation rate at the moment is about one and a half percent, something of that order. Um, and I was just looking at this yesterday. If you're looking at Ethereum and Solana, they also have uh, inflation built in, embedded into their coding. And it sort of varies from, you know, 5%. Ethereum was much higher. It's now coming down. Solana uh, is coming. I think it's about 1.5% as well, if I remember correctly. So you can actually predict. They're, they're not inelastic. In other words, there, there will be some inflation allowed. But um, it's, it's predictable. You can think of the code for these, these, these uh, new decentralized currencies or public blockchains as social contracts, as constitutions. Okay, And in the same way that constitutions in a nation can evolve and change, the constitutions or the code for these systems can change. Something like Bitcoin is not negotiable for the community. The rule for 21 million Bitcoins stays. I think that it will be extremely difficult to change now in the future but things like ethereum the social contract is different in that community that community is trying to build a system that does very different things to what bitcoin can do same with solana and some of these other things although i don't know them so well um but so in that there's going to be more flexibility around the supply of eth for example in order to ensure economic incentives and guarantees are kind of in place so that the network can remain secure and the supply for eth for example as a result of that of this is moving around. It's less predictable. That's why I'm saying these are different economic goods. Right. And, and just an interesting case that comes to mind, Marshall Islands, which is a group of islands in the Pacific Ocean. I think they're part of the United States. They introduced the CBDC, a central bank digital currency, and it was the first in the world to do this, where they had embedded into the CBDC 4% inflation. So you can never... Uh, the coding won't allow you to go more than 4% inflation per year on these CBDCs. And, and this, of course, is something that people are beginning to confront and understand a little bit more because CBDCs are another coming thing. It's kind of the central bank's response to Bitcoin. Um, to see where, where that goes, I think private money is going to win hands down, uh, is, is my feeling. Private money being the likes of Bitcoin and Ethereum and so on. Um, Kyle, I, I want to ask you, I want to wrap up yes. here. We, we, we're... We're running out of time, but I want to ask you if you think Bitcoin is worth a million rand. Um, if so, why? If not, why not? <laughs> where do we where do we go from here? Is a lot of people are saying this is just the start of a journey. We're nowhere near the end of it. Well, um, that's that, that's always been one of the hardest questions um, to 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 answer. And 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 Chris um, made the point earlier that, uh, Bitcoin does have a completely inelastic supply curve. So, uh, the valuation must be set in entirely, um, on the demand side of, of, of the supply demand, um, equation, but, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard, uh, to, to forecast th th that demand with, with any certainty. Um, the, the most common, uh, Technique I've I've seen used by market participants to arrive at at a valuation for Bitcoin is is actually to compare uh, the value of all the crypto uh, um, Bitcoins in issue, which is is roughly 
around a trillion dollars today with 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 all the golden issue which is around um 11 trillion dollars in 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 circulation and and obviously if 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 you do that you arrive at a very high number i mean it it would suggest that that there's a lot of upside left but um again uh you know it's 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 completely a demand driven thing and and it's very hard um to 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 speculate you know at any given point in time what what the next move will be in in terms mm. of demand mm. Chris, you want to pick that up? Yeah, I mean, I agree. That's that's where demand shifts around. So if you think of sort of national currencies, you know, that that we're familiar with, like the rand, um, typically when demand for the currency goes up, you'll see supply be increased. High, rising demand for a currency is typically also an environment in which inflation is going down, and so supply has has leeway to increase, and so you get more stability and management in the stability of a currency like this. Bitcoin's a new thing. There's no there's no interference with supply, and so demand when demand moves the price moves. I think I think the big debate between um, you know trying to understand the demand side for something like Bitcoin is is really between sort of traditional finance and um, you know banks and payments companies who are, are trying to understand this use case. They don't really see the need for something like this because they feel that they're sort of servicing. The market sufficiently in the products and services that they can offer. But when you look at what the technology community, for example, is saying, businesses like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the big the big global businesses, is, is one of their, their biggest costs, or a company like Uber is a good example, their biggest costs are interfacing with domestic banking systems all around the world. It's, ex- it's extremely costly to them. Um, dealing in all these different foreign currencies, you know, facilitating payments from there to their headquarters and head office, um, you know, building those interfaces so customers can pay. Now, you know, you know, networks like Visa and MasterCard have made that a lot easier for them. But when it comes to running treasuries and, you know, operations on the ground, it's more difficult. What Bitcoin offers to these businesses is an internet protocol that sits alongside TCP, IP, HTTP, all these other things that they use day to day. And uh, that literally they can switch on payments with that can now start to interact seamlessly with the applications that they're building. And so when you think of it in that context, and uh, you know, I would say this is why Twitter is quite excited about, about this new technology, you start to think about a very different shift in what happens on the demand side for this. And so it's the constant interplay between actually executing on this from the tech companies and other businesses who are trying to make this asset more useful and traditional banking, uh, you know, uh, that that leads to this volatility at this stage. It's an interesting thought that uh, there are stable coins for the RAND. There's a few of them. And you can purchase goods in China with RANDs going completely outside of the Reserve Bank control uh, because they are not RANDs. They are not legal tender. But they will be accepted by purchasers, uh, or s- sorry, sellers in China. It's a vision of what's to come, I think, is that uh, people are going to find more efficient and cheaper ways of doing things. I think we're going to leave it there. I want to thank both Chris Becker and Kyle Wales for coming on to MoneyWeb Crypto and uh, sharing their insights and thoughts on the great Bitcoin debate. Is it real money? Is it just a speculative asset? And is it really worth a million rand? Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll probably have to pick this up in a few months' time, but I want to thank you, Chris. Thanks, Kieran. And Kyle, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Kieran.
Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.